If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Exodus, all the way back in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, second book in the Bible. We are continuing in a series where we're walking through uh, Moses' life and what we know of Moses, TV gave us, movies gave us, didn't it? We know Moses Charlton Heston, the dark, handsome, with a great beard man who led the nation of Israel out of captivity and into their freedom. But what we sometimes forget about Moses is he struggled with some of the very same things that we struggle with. He had some of the same insecurities that we have. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the life of Moses, and we're going to take a look specifically at Moses and the nation of Israel and how they interacted and and what we can learn from that relationship and the relationship that God had with Moses and that Moses had with God and that the nation of Israel had with God. In week one, we saw how God used Moses despite the circumstances of his birth, of his upbringing, of the fact that he made a critical mistake in his life. We think it was early in his life that it was actually around the age of 40. And he made a mistake and he killed someone and he ran out into the desert. And we learned how God can use us despite our past mistakes, despite our past failures, despite how we were brought up. In week two, last week, we learned how God used Moses to lead two and a half million people out of captivity, even though he really wasn't equipped for the job. When you really looked at Moses' gift mix and the way that he was made up and the experience that he had, he really wasn't equipped to do that. But God used him anyway. And many times God is going to use us regardless of whether we think we're ready for it, regardless if we think we're made up to do that job that God has for us. He's going to use us regardless. And so this week, we kind of turn our attention, we learn and find out, we'll find out that God used Moses in his relationship with the nation of Israel and all that they went through in those few months kind of after they came out of captivity. Before we dive into his word this morning, will you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, pray that you would guide our time this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guide us into wisdom and knowledge and understanding May you lead us to new truths from your word. And God, may we allow those truths to change us as people. May we allow those truths to penetrate and pierce our hearts and our lives. And God, may we not be the same people as we came in today. God, I pray for those who walked in here today and God, they're burdened by what's going on in their lives God, they may be stressed because of a job situation. They may be burdened because of a family situation. They may be consumed with a relationship that's gone awry. Father God, I pray that you would bring peace right now and that you would help those who walked in here and they're troubled in their hearts. God, I pray that you would help them to remain focused on you for these next few moments. And God, I pray that you would just help them to understand what it means to truly follow you, and to truly trust in you, even when it's difficult to do so. And I pray this in the strong name of Jesus, and God's people said, amen. When we left off last week, we left off with Moses and Aaron, 
And they finally did what God told them to do. You know, God enlisted Moses' brother Aaron, and because Moses couldn't speak well, we don't know if he couldn't speak Hebrew real well, or we don't know if he maybe had a speech impediment, but in some way or another, he couldn't really communicate very well. And so God gave him Aaron, his older brother, to help him communicate. And so Aaron became Moses' mouthpiece. And so they are in front of Pharaoh, they're before Pharaoh, and they ask the king of Egypt to let the people go. And Pharaoh says to Moses and Aaron, fine, after so many times of asking, fine, just go ahead, go worship God the way that he's asked you to. Get out of here, please be gone. And I love, there's this one little part there in, in Exodus chapter 12 that Pharaoh says, oh, and by the way, bless me. And I think it's an acknowledgement of Pharaoh realizing that this God of the Jewish people, this God that Moses and Aaron and these Israelites worshipped, is really the one true God. And despite all of what Pharaoh did, I believe that he actually believed that this one was the one true God. I think ten plagues in your country, when you're the leader of the country, will probably change your opinion about who God is when God puts those plagues upon your country. And that's exactly what God did because Pharaoh's heart was hardened. There were 10 different plagues that came upon Egypt while Pharaoh's heart was hardened toward, toward the Jewish people. And so he went through those different plagues. The nation of Israel went through them with the, with the Egyptians. And the last one was the fact that the firstborn of each household would die. The death angel would come, and the firstborn of each household would die unless the people did what God told them to do, and that was paint the blood of a perfect animal across the doorpost. And so finally, finally, this king of Egypt lets the Jewish people go. And they gather together all these Jewish people that numbered now in the two millions. Maybe some scholars, some theologians believe it might have even been three million. We'll say two and a half million just for argument's sake. Two and a half million people gathered up their uh, essential belongings and they began to get ready to leave captivity. They began to get ready to leave Egypt and two and a half million people organized together and they walked out of Egypt into the desert towards the Sinai Desert. I wonder what, you know, Google Earth would have looked like that day if a satellite had taken a snapshot of two and a half million people trailing out of Egypt into the Sinai Peninsula. That must have been a sight to see all these people walking out into the desert. And so for those first few months in their journey, I, I wonder what they were thinking. You know, here's this whole nation that's been in captivity for so long, and all these plagues have happened, and then they just leave one day. This man named Moses, who they just a few months before thought was an Egyptian, all of a sudden he leads them out of Egypt. What were they thinking? I guarantee you that they weren't thinking, well, here we go. This is a 40-year journey. <laughs> I guarantee you they weren't thinking that. I, I bet that there were stories about their ancestors who had made the opposite journey 400 years earlier. Remember Jacob? Jacob and his 11 sons made the journey from their land to Egypt. His other son, his 12th son, Joseph, had been sold by his brothers into slavery. We kind of hit that when we talked about the faithful series. And we talked about how Joseph was sold into slavery and he ended up in Egypt. He ended up being the second in command in Egypt. And so he went to the Pharaoh and he asked the Pharaoh, hey, can my family, can my people come to Egypt? 
And Pharaoh said, yeah, absolutely, they can come to Egypt. In fact, they can have the best land. They can settle in Goshen, where there was areas to farm, and it was rich in nutrients. And so the Israelite people numbered 70 people at that time and settled in the best part of Egypt. 400 years later, after being held in captivity and having grown from 70 to 2.5 million people, here they are wandering out in the desert heading towards what they think is the promised land. I wonder what they were thinking because Jacob and his 11 brothers, most experts tell us that it took them anywhere between 11 and 15 days to make that journey. The journey from where they were in Israel to where Goshen was there in Egypt. 11 to 15 days. And now they're on a journey that little did they know would take 40 years. And I don't know about you, but when I read this passage and when I consider the nation of Israel and when I think about Moses and how he led them, it causes me to wonder, what was God doing? What in the world was he doing to lead this nation who's already been through so much? They've been beat. They were put into slavery. What in the world was he doing leading them through the desert? What was he doing leading them for 40 years? Years, a trip that in that day and age took 11 to 15 days, took 40 years. Couldn't God have just sent them the direct route? Couldn't God have led them across the Red Sea without, or, or north of the Red Sea without them having to go through the Red Sea? Couldn't he have just snapped and in a moment they were back in the promised land in Canaan? But God had different plans. Let's take a look at Exodus 13, verses 17 through 18. And let's learn a little bit about this relationship between God and the Israelites and how Moses led them on this journey. Verse 17 of Exodus 13, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. I don't know about you, but I find that kind of funny. I mean, this is a people that were held in captivity in Egypt, and God's concern is that maybe they would turn around and head back to Egypt? Really? God, do you really think that those people would do that? Okay. If they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Take a look at verse 18. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Two and a half million people on the move. The only way for me to get my mind around two and a half to three million people is to think about the town I grew up in, Atlanta, Georgia. Back in the 1980s when I grew up in Atlanta, they said that the population of Atlanta, the actual uh, city of Atlanta within the city uh, 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 you know, uh, population was three million people. And I think about Atlanta and all that it takes to, for Atlanta to exist. I mean, think about it. Multiple, multiple hospital systems, not just hospitals, but multiple systems. It takes a force of thousands and tens of thousands of officials to take care of the city. It has a security police force of maybe a couple thousand people, dozens of schools and hospitals and all the different government agencies that take to keep Atlanta going. And it was three million people that were stationary. This was two and a half million people that were on the move. I mean, Moses had a huge job, didn't he? I mean, I'm sure that there were babies being born, right? How does that 
happen on the move? I want to know about that. How does that happen? How does it happen when people are sick and are in need of medical care and two and a half million people are in the desert with really no permanent home? How did they go about their religion that was very complicated, that was very extensive in its nature? How did they go about daily life? This was a huge task. Why would God have taken two and a half million people through the desert for so long? I want to know why. And it makes me think, some of you may be asking why about your own situation. Some of you may be asking, why, God, has it taken so long, or why is it taking so long for me to find that career? Why is it taking me so long to find that job? Why in the world would I have worked in some industry for only these last five years for you to pull me out and put me into something else that's really unknown? Some of you may be thinking, why? God, is it taking 40 years for me to meet that person, that someone, that person that's just right for me? Some of you may be asking that question, why in the world is God wanting me to wait so long? Some of you may be asking that. And I want to take a look at the notes this morning because I think this passage of Scripture, these couple passages of Scripture from Exodus 13 through 15 can teach us a lot about what it means to wait on God. Take a look at your notes this morning. God may take us on the long route in our journey because, first of all, he ultimately knows what we can and cannot handle in life. He ultimately knows what we can and cannot handle in life. Why did God not take the Israelites through the direct route from point A to point B? Because he knew there was an army, the Philistine army, that probably would have gone to war with the nation of Israel. And he knew their weaknesses, he knew their temptations, and he knew that that would drive them right back into slavery. There were many times in, in the book of Exodus and Numbers where the nation of Israel cries out to Moses and cries out to God, why did we have to come all this way in the desert? Can't we just go back to Egypt? God knew that they would ask that question. He knew that they would wonder, why in the world can't we go back into captivity, but he knew their temptations, he knew their tendencies, he knew their weaknesses, and he knew their responses. And you know what? He knows the same thing about you. He knows what your temptations are. He knows your weaknesses. He knows what you don't know about yourself. He knows you better than yourself. And God may be having you wait for that thing, whatever that thing is, because he knows you better than you know yourself. He ultimately knows what you can and cannot handle in life. I was called into the ministry at about 16 years old, and I spent the next 10 years kind of running from God on that calling in my life. And there are often times at 30, in my late 30s now, that I asked God, why in the world couldn't I have just like done this right out of college? I'm in seminary right now. I'm about halfway through a 45-hour program, and um, I'm five years in. That's a long time to be five years into a very short program, and it seems to be taking me forever. And there are moments, there are times when I ask myself, this would have been so much easier if at 22 when I graduated college, I just went right into seminary, you know, like normal people do. But God knows me best. 
And he knows that at 25, I probably wouldn't have taken it seriously. He knows that in my late 30s, I needed that mental stimulation and that challenge of seminary. He knew that doing it now would best prepare me for the future. You see, he knows what I don't know. And some of you need to hear that today. Some of you need to hear that he knows what you don't know. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your tendencies. He knows what is best. But that's not the only reason that God takes us on the long route sometimes. I believe there's another reason that's revealed here. Take a look at Exodus 14, 1 through 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to go to all these places that none of us can pronounce, which is essentially right by the Red Sea, okay? It's right next to the Red Sea and encamp there, right by the Red Sea. Go right up to the sea and camp there. Take a look at verse 3. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. You know what I'm thinking at this point? Pharaoh's not the only one thinking that. I bet the nation of Israel's thinking that. Okay, well, wait a minute, God. You, 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 we were in captivity, but we were being fed. We were taken care of in Egypt. Yeah, they whipped us and they, they treated us horribly, but we were being fed. We were taken care of. Now you're leading us into the desert, and now you're telling us to camp right by the sea. There's desert in Egypt behind and a sea in front of us. How is this good? How in the world is this good? But God says Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around in, uh, in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. Verse 4, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, but I will gain what? Glory. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all of his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. They listened, and they obeyed God, and they camped where probably they didn't want to go. They stationed themselves where God had told them. I think it was a fascinating point. And if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. I think it's just an amazing point about how God deals with us and how he uses us. He's, his desire in our lives is to bring glory to himself. His desire for our lives is for us to glorify him, to magnify him, to point people to him, to represent him well. And this brings up, I think, one of the most complex, maybe misunderstood uh, uh, philosophies or, or, or statements. Uh, it brings up something that is so very difficult for us to understand. In fact, it's even hard to say sometimes, and it's this principle. It's not about me. In fact, I want you to say it with me. Are you ready? It's not about me. Whew. That's hard to say. Never mind do, isn't it? The nation of Israel, God says in this verse, regardless of how he was taking them, was going to use this situation for his glory. And whether it's a high or a low or a failure or a victory or an up or a down in your life, God can, if you're a Christ follower, he can use your life for his glory. And that's his desire is to do so. Some of you are going through some dark days and you're like, Todd, I cannot fathom how in the world God can use what I'm going through for his glory. You know what? He can. He can. He can use it for his 
glory. You know why? Because it's not about me. Sometimes we get so fixated on our situation and our lack of ability and our uh, failures and our uh, uh, lack of being able to uh, do something for God or do something for our family or do something for our business. And I believe what God is trying to tell the church is it's not about me. It is all for his glory. Take a look at the second point. God may take us on the long route in our journey because he wants the opportunity. Please don't miss this. He wants the opportunity to reveal his true self to us and others through our circumstances. He wants the opportunity to reveal his true self to us and to others through our circumstances. Do you realize that what you may be going through right now that thing in your life that's weighing you down so much. It may be that God takes that one day and uses it to lead someone to him. He may take that situation that you're going through right now that you've failed in the past and the consequences of which are kind of trailing you here into the future. He may use that to help someone else get out of a similar circumstance. He wants the opportunity to reveal his true self to us and others our circumstances. Well, what is his true self? The Bible has so much to say about who God is. Hundreds of different things, hundreds of different characteristics of who God is. For instance, the psalmist says this, he sustains me. The psalmist, David the psalmist says, he sustains me. And he says, in addition to that, we can cast all of our cares on him. And when we do, when we truly rely on God for our cares, He's the one that gets the glory, not us. Whether it's a failure or a victory, God can receive the glory from it. Does that change the perspective of your current situation? The Apostle Paul said that that God is the great provider, that he's the one that can provide for our future, and he's the one that can take care of all of our needs. And when we trust him to come through on our behalf, not trusting ourselves, not trusting that self-help book, not trusting Oprah Book of the Month Club or that 800 number that you can call, but trusting him when we trust him, he's revealed as the great provider. He's revealed as a great provider and glory goes to him. Generally, though, we find ourselves in the desert. We find ourselves in situations where God is leading us on the long route and our reaction is to whine and complain, isn't it? I was in England a few years ago, and I heard a term. Well, I heard a lot of terms in England that I had not heard, but one term that I heard was this word whinging. Some of you have heard this word whinging before, and somebody said it in passing, like somebody was whinging about a, about a particular situation, and I stopped him and I said, wait a minute, we don't have that word in America. What does that mean? And I loved their response. I said, it's complaining, only worse. It's whining, only worse. Whinging. But that's what we do, isn't it? We find ourselves taking the God leading us through the long way, and we whine, and we complain, and we whinge. And when we do, we sound like our children sometimes, don't we, to God? Take a look at what happens in Exodus 14, 10 through 14. Exodus 14, turn over to that next chapter, 10 through 14. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, And there were Egyptians, there were the Egyptians marching after them. 
Okay, this situation is gone from bad to worse. God's led us out of captivity. We're at the brink of the Red Sea. There's desert behind us. And now, guess who else is behind us? Pharaoh and his army. Glad we took up our arms. Glad we were prepared for battle. Verse uh, 11, they said to Moses, get this, this response is just so classic. Okay, they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? I love that response. So basically they're saying to Moses, hey, Mo, you've brought us all this way. There's a sea in front of us, the desert behind us, and now Pharaoh and his army's on our tail. Was it because you just wanted us to die out here in the desert where you wouldn't have to bury us? Is that the reason? Have we been tricked here, Moses? It would have been better for us, verse 12, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. Egyptians, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. You know, what the Egypt, you know what the Israelites did at this point in time? They proved God right, didn't they? Sure enough, sure enough, when they met with trouble, they wanted to go right back to where they were. And isn't that what we want to do so many times? You see, I think we as humans actually like to whinge. We like to complain. We like to kind of wallow in our self-pity. Like, just send us back to where we were, God. It was so much better there, whining and complaining and whining and complaining. Verse 13, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be what? Still. And in a great leadership moment, Moses comes through. He hasn't done it too many times up to this point, has he? He hasn't done it too, too many times up to this point. But his advice in this situation is fantastic. If you're in a situation where God is taking you on the long route, I believe the first thing that you need to do is be still, is to stand firm. Most theologians, most experts say that this is at a point where the nation of Israel spent a tremendous amount of time on their knees, praying, asking for God's provision. That at this, it was at this point in time when the going got tough, when things were really closing in, that their leader, Moses, gave them the great advice to spend time standing strong on the promises of God and praying and asking for his provision. That's why I'm asking us as a church to pray next week. That's why we spent time putting together a prayer guide online to guide you through those half an hour increments because we as a church need to get on our knees and we need to ask for the hand of the Almighty to lead us and guide us and be our great provider. And Moses says, stand firm and be still. Take a look at your notes. In the face of our greatest challenge, we must exchange a complaining spirit for a total trust in God's plan for a total trust in God's plan. But standing firm is only one of the things that we need to do when the situation gets dark and when the journey gets long and when it seems like that desert is going to go on forever. Take a look at verses 14 and 15. The Lord will fight for you, he says. You need only to be still. Look at the very next verse, verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. And it's kind of like, wait a minute, is, is God disciplining Moses 
for calling the nation of Israel to prayer? How can that be? How's that bad? How's it bad that he's calling them to prayer? What God is saying in this situation is that now that you've prayed, now that you've stood firm on his promises, now it's time to what? Move on. Now it's time to move on. There's a time for prayer. There's a time to be still. There's a time to stand strong on God's promises, but there is also a time for action. There's also a time to walk where God says walk. I want you to capture this principle. God won't provide for you if when he leads you, you're idle. God won't provide for you if when he leads you to do something, you just stand there. It's time to move on. I told you about my seminary experience. One of the seminaries that I started with was Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. They had an extension center up in New York City, and I would go to the extension center. Well, Al Mohler became the president of Southern Seminary in 1993. It was his lifelong dream to become the president of Southern Seminary. <laughs> That's something else. Like when you're 14, you're like, yeah, I want to be a fireman. I want to be police. I want to be the president of Southern Seminary. And he became the president of Southern Seminary. And what he found was awful. The seminary had uh, uh, gone so far away from God's word. In fact, they were moving towards believing that scripture was with error. Dangerous, very dangerous. They began to, to do things that would indicate that they believed that there was multiple ways to heaven. Dangerous. And so in his first address as the president of Southern Seminary, he told the student body and he told the faculty and the staff he had a message for him. And his message was this, don't just do something, stand there. And essentially what his message was is we have got to get back to the roots of God's word. We've got to stand on his promises. We have to know what God's word says about any given situation. And 10 years later, 10 years later, after taking 10 years to do that, in 2003, his anniversary message to the faculty and the staff and the students there was, don't just stand there, do something. You see, once you really understand who God is and once you've had an opportunity to be still and know that he is God, then it's time to do something. It's not time to stand idly by and let things go by. The next point is this, in the face of our greatest challenge, we must exchange an inactive response for immediate action when God gives direction. Exchange an inactive response for immediate action when God gives direction. I would imagine that some of you are wondering why God has led you around for so long without an answer to whatever situation you're facing. And I would bet that there's some of you in here that God has absolutely given the answer and you've said, I'm not moving. I'm not moving. Maybe it's time to move. Maybe it's time to walk where he wants you to walk. Guess where he wanted the nation of Israel to walk? Right into the Red Sea. Right into the water that faced them. Right into their greatest fear. The Red Sea. Take a look at verses 26 through 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Verse 27, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back into its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. 
the water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. And I love verse 29. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Oh, that's kind of gruesome, isn't it? They saw their enemies there lying on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. And what put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant? Parents, back me up on this. One of the hardest lessons to teach children is gratitude. Am I right? It is very difficult. I have a five-year-old and almost eight-year-old, and one of the hardest things, one of the most difficult things to teach is gratitude. When we hear our children whine and complain and whinge, it grates on our nerve because we want them to be grateful. God does the same thing when we whine and complain about our present circumstances with him. Moses had to leave two, lead two and a half million people out into the desert. They were whining and complaining. And you may be in here today and you're saying, Todd, my situation is not directly me, but I am leading a group of people that are whining and complaining. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your parents. Perhaps it's a company or an organization that you're leading and all they're doing is whining and complaining and whinging and wondering what in the world is going on. Take a look at your key point this morning. Moses was frustrated and angry with the grumbling of the Israelites as he led them through the desert. He was frustrated and angry with the grumblings of the Israelites as he led them through the desert. We can learn from Moses' life that following God's plan, following God's plan may not always make sense to us, but he sees the big picture and we can trust him. We can trust him. We can trust him. Some of you needed to hear that for your own life. Some of you needed to hear that for the people that you're leading, for those around you who are whining and complaining. Let's make it personal this morning. Do you really trust that God has a plan for you? Do you really trust that God has a plan for you? And here's the tough question. What attitude adjustment? Oh, Todd, you said those words. I don't like those words. I like to whine and complain. Some of you think whining is a spiritual gift. It's not. What attitude adjustment do you need to make today so that you can fully experience joy and gratitude in your life? The Apostle Paul said this in Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do everything. I want you to say it with me. Everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. Father God, help us to live that verse out. God, help us even when we want to whine and complain, even when we want to be in a place where we whinge and whine and grumble and complain, and we like to whinge and whine and grumble and complain. Father God, help us to realize that that is going to do nothing, nothing to help us put our trust in you. Help us, God, to stand firm 
on your promises. Help us to move when you say to move. And God, help us to look into our lives and find where you're working and where you have answered before. And help us, God, to trust you and have gratitude for what you're doing. Help us to be people who trust you so deeply. We rely on you so much that God, even through the worst of times, we're willing to completely and totally trust your promises and know that they're true. Help us, as the Bible says, as Scripture says, with our unbelief. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.